Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to the Kākāpō Files. I'm Alison Balance from RNZ and it's great to have your company for episode 18 called Worrying Times for Kākāpō. We're finding out the hard way that a Kākāpō breeding season is an emotional roller coaster. We had some sad news last time and I'm afraid there is more of that again this time. Having said that, it's far from being all doom and gloom. At about 24 or so minutes into the podcast, we will be treated to a remarkable piece of archive audio reminiscing on Kākāpō in the 1890s. Do stick around for that, gem. This episode is coming to you on May the 15th, and the interviews were recorded yesterday. So it comes with my usual disclaimer. Things change so fast in the world of the owl parrot that it's probably already out of date. But right now, at this very moment in time, there are 144 adult kākāpō and 73 living chicks. Now here's Daryl Eason from the Department of Conservation's kākāpō recovery team on the line from the New Zealand Centre for Conservation Medicine at Auckland Zoo. Kia ora and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files, Daryl. Hello, Alison. Yes. Been a bit of an up and down week, actually. Yes, I was going to say it's actually been more of a down week. So um, huge commiserations from me, and I know that all the listeners will be feeling the same. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It has been hard, and I'm at the moment in Auckland at the zoo at NZCCM helping with some sick chicks there. Oh dear. Well, just before we get to those chicks, in the last episode of the Kākāpō Files, Deirdre told us the very sad news of Hawkey, and there's been more sad news with the adult birds since then. Do you want to tell me about that? Two old-timers died, so Arab, following fight injuries, and Gumboots managed to get himself stuck in a tree. He got his leg caught in the forked branch and really sadly couldn't free himself. Oh dear, those kind of accidents happen occasionally and they're always very tragic. They sure are. Yeah, I found gumboots pretty special. Well, I always have this special thing about the original Stewart Island birds and I'm very keen that we get everyone to pass on their genes and have their own offspring and we never did for gumboots, so that's very sad. Did gumboot not mate at all this year? No, gumboots didn't mate. He tends not to very often, so that's a shame. And what about Arab? Arabs had two offspring in only last breeding season, in 2016, so that I was very happy about that. He didn't mate this year, and in fact, he didn't perform very well at all this year. And when I, when I saw him in February, I thought he was really looking quite old. And I commented at the time that I think, I don't think he's going to make it to the next breeding season. So he died of some complications following his surgery and perhaps his old age was a, a factor in that, but 
there's always going to be a risk when birds, especially old birds, are anaesthetised for surgery. Now, last time when I spoke to Deidre, there were a number of chicks who were being sent off to be treated, and I gather the news there is very bad. It's potentially very bad. So I gather you've actually had four chick deaths in the last week. Can you just run through those? Sadly, so we had Bella 2A from Ponamu's nest who got moved eventually to Esperance's nest because she wasn't doing well there. Tumeki 4A from Weherua Tanga's nest and Queenie 4 from Ihi's nest. And they all lost a little bit of weight. They were looking very good until very close to death. And they've all died of aspergillosis, which is a fungal pneumonia. So that's the same thing that killed Hulky? It is. The same thing that killed Hulky and the same thing that killed her first chick, Bella 1. And Waikawa 4B, I gather she died as well. Was that aspergillosis? Was that something else? It was something else. Waikawa 4B was an absolute mystery. She did have respiratory difficulty, so we thought it was aspergillosis. She was actually picking up quite well during hand-rearing and showing all very positive signs, and then she just died. And following autopsy, there was absolutely no evidence that can be found cause of death. So the living chicks were now down to 73? 73, yes. And I think that's actually 29 in nests on both Anka and Whenua Ho, and another eight hand-reared chicks on Whenua Ho. And we've still got two at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital and five now at Auckland Zoo. On Friday, I brought up three chicks and one mother. We had Ruatanga Otapur, was the mum, and two chicks that were originally from Hockey's Nest, Huhana 2 and Pearl 2, and also Alice 3 from Wehepo's Nest. And yesterday we received one more, Awarua 3 from Whenua Ho. They actually look like normal healthy chicks, and we're mostly concerned that each of those nests have had a sibling or nest mate that has died from aspergillosis, and that some of these birds have very high white blood cell counts. So there could be disease underlying, but it's incredibly hard to detect. So aspergillosis, is that something that you've had problems with before? It has killed one bird in the past, a bird called Rooster. I think he died in 2012. He was about three or four years old. It's a fungal pneumonia. And there was another bird that died in 2016, just after it was weaned from hand-rearing, was fungal pneumonia but not aspergillosis. So it's been very rare in Kākāpō, and so this is an absolute surprise to see it happening now. And normally, at this age, at fledging age, we'd expect the chicks to be just doing very well. There's usually been no problems in the past at this age. Yeah, we were getting pretty comfortable with the fact that everyone was looking bonny and happy. I know, absolutely. And I was kind of thinking, once they're past a month old, you expect them to be home and hosed and they'll be fine. Do you have Uh, any ideas what might be going on? Well, it's a really complicated situation. Aspergillus is very difficult to detect until it's at a very advanced state. And the birds hide their illness very well, so you can't tell that. And it kind of strikes when there might be stress or for some reason the bird's immunity is low. 
and that can be caused from a number of reasons. And we are looking into that at the moment with our extended vet team. We've got our fantastic vets from NZCCM at Auckland Zoo and the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital and also Wild Bass at Massey University, all helping and looking into it. And at this stage, we're a bit uncertain, but we're looking at all possibilities. So from a management point of view, what are you thinking you're going to do? I imagine you're probably a bit stuck. Yeah, we are a bit stuck at the moment, and we have to think about the history of each of those birds and where they've been from one nest to another and see what links there might be. We thought there might be simple things like, oh, the birds that died from aspergillosis might have come from a nest box, so we've modified their environment, but no, most of them are from natural nests. We'll look at the food potential, but it's all just putting the jigsaw pieces together at the moment. Is this just happening on Fenuaho or is it happening on Anchor as well? Just on Fenuaho at the moment, so hopefully that's as far as it goes. So the one adult and the four chicks that you've got up at Auckland Zoo at the moment, you're basically investigating them. What do your investigations show? Do they have aspergillosis? Are you able to tell? Well, we aren't able to tell at the moment. We know that three of them actually have quite high white blood cell counts, but that usually doesn't occur until later on in the disease process. And yesterday we took them down for a CT scan you took them for a CT scan. Whereabouts at the hospital? Yes, at a veterinary hospital in Auckland. So that was a three-hour process, anaesthetising each bird and getting it put through the scanner. Does that allow you to actually visualise what's going on in the lungs? Absolutely, yeah. And they can essentially construct a 3D image of the bird internally. Very interesting. I do have a, a relevant listener question so I'll read it out to you. Hello my name is Aidan and I am 11 and I live in Leicester in the UK. I love kākāpō and I listen to the kākāpō files. I was sad that hoki, arab and gumboots died. My question is what happens to their body after they die? Are they used for study or preserved or is there a kākāpō graveyard somewhere? Yes Aidan I was very sad about those deaths as well. It really depends on what's the bird is when it dies and what the problem was at death. All of the birds are used to study and the most important thing is to find out why they died and can we prevent that happening in the future. Some of the birds are preserved, some might go to museums and if some birds are in a bad state like, for instance, gumboots who becomes partly decomposed we also keep some of the feathers for the local iwi to use for traditional purposes. I like the thought of their feathers becoming taonga, treasures for the local iwi though. I know, it's lovely isn't it? And they're just gorgeous feathers. Well, have you got any better news for us Daryl? We talk about the roller coaster of kākāpō breeding seasons and this has very much been a very deep low for the last couple of weeks so... There must be something good going on. How are all the other chicks getting on out there in the wild? It is a low time, but we still do have 73 chicks, which is absolutely wonderful and amazing. It's remarkable. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And we've had about 32 chicks fledged or almost fledged 
in the last few weeks. Eight nests on both Anchor and Whenuaho have fledged chicks now. So that's great. Nice to see them getting out and starting to wander around, look for their own food. That's brilliant. And we've also got Solstice, who has been a bit of a project for me. I've been trying to get her to raise chicks for four breeding seasons now. And each other year, she has failed to feed her chicks. And we've had to remove them pretty promptly before they died. So this year, I tried one last time. I thought I wasn't going to try Solstice with a chick this year. But because the rumour was fruiting so well, I thought, I wonder if it's to do with the food type that she struggles with. So we tried with the youngest chick on Whenuaho, Kwehi 3B, and gave it to her at 20 days old. So she went from a dummy egg, a smart egg, actually, for three days, and then I gave her a 20-day-old chick. And it took her a couple of days to get it sorted, but she's now feeding it and so far going quite well. So that must have been one of the first nests you've actually got a chance to trial the smart egg in this year? We've tried a few, actually. I definitely notice that the birds notice when the egg is cheeping. It plays the recordings of the hatching egg about every 20 minutes and you'll notice the mum sit up and listen and then fidget around with her egg. So hopefully it has some benefit for her and helps her out and anticipating that there's a chick about to turn up at some stage. Oh, that's brilliant that that's working. Yeah, it is. It's great. I've got a question about nests that fledge more than one chick at a time. So some of those three chick nests, what does mum do when the chicks decide to leave home? Do they all go off in different directions or are they all still hanging around together? They all still hang around together. They don't tend to go that far from the nest for quite a few weeks and then they gradually move further away. But um, you'll often hear them grumbling a bit and I think as mum comes they'll be grumbling and just sort of letting her know that I'm over here and one of the others is over there. They're usually anything from 5 to 10 or 20 metres away from each other, but they're loosely sort of grouped and then they'll get back together. These young ones are feeding themselves or are they still getting fed by mum a bit? They still get fed by mum a lot, actually. They start to nibble and try all sorts of different things. They'll try just about everything, I think, and just work out what leaves and plants are good to eat. And you'll see them eating things that, you don't normally see them feeding on as adults. For instance, they'll be eating broadleaf leaves, but you don't tend to see the adults eating those. They'll give everything a go and work out what are the good ones to eat. And they'll eventually become a little more discerning. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. That was Daryl Eason from the Kākāpō team. And just to confirm, there are actually six Kākāpō at Auckland Zoo, four chicks and an adult being monitored for aspergillosis, and another chick who's been there for a couple of weeks for other reasons. Now, on the Kākāpō Files, I thought it would be good to get some vet perspectives on this fearsome fungal killer aspergillosis. We last spoke on the podcast to Auckland Zoo vet James Chatterton back in episode 13, Fat Happy Kākāpō Chicks. He was rather busy feeding newly hatched chicks down on Whenua Hau, He's now back at the zoo and on the line. Kia ora and welcome, James, to the Kākāpō Files. Morning. I gather you've now got a bit of a, a fungal conundrum on your hands. Tell me about a vet perspective on aspergillosis. Yeah, that's right. So unfortunately we've had a number of chicks present sick and some of those have died 
and um, we found Aspergillus in most of those. So this is a fungal disease, relatively common in birds, and it often it's a secondary infection. So by that we mean usually something else has happened to those birds to reduce their immune system, and then it's allowed the, uh, the fungus to spread and invade after that. What we're working really hard at the moment is is two-pronged approach. We're trying to identify any of the chicks that are sick with this fungus and trying to treat them, but that's extremely difficult to do. And then we're also trying to work out why it's happening and there's a number of possible underlying causes and we're all working really hard to, to identify what those causes are and, and obviously put some preventative measures in place. I know that fungal infections in humans are very difficult to treat, so I assume this is the same for you? Yeah, absolutely. One of the many frustrating problems when we're dealing with fungal infections in birds is that often by the time the bird shows that it's sick, so by the time it looks lethargic and it's got breathing problems, often by then it's far too late to actually cure it. And diagnosing it early before the bird looks sick is extremely difficult, but it is possible. Uh, There's just... It's much easier if it's a pet parrot living in a cage at the hospital and we can do lots of investigations. Obviously, we've got an added complication with carcapore that live in offshore islands. We can't just pop all 40 chicks on Fenoho up to the vet clinic and give them a quick once-over. So we're working through a range of investigations on the island and then the particularly sick chicks are coming off the island for further investigation and treatment. Yeah, but it's worrying times. Obviously, this time round, you're getting more than one bird at a time in a nest that's suffering from it. Is it generally an infectious thing, or is it just something that you would usually just pick up from the environment? So Aspergillus spores are ubiquitous. So yes, by that we mean that they float around in the air everywhere. And so everywhere that there's animals and there's people and there's life, there's Aspergillus spores. You know, almost always, you never say never in veterinary medicine, but it's almost always contracted from the environment and that's almost always secondary to something else immunosuppressing that individual in the first place. Um, It's extremely uncommon for the aspergillus to be transmitted bird to bird. Very complex. (laughs) Yeah, really complex. There's no one test that we can do to diagnose this and there's no simple way of unpicking this problem so what we have to do is take a multifaceted approach and we have to gather lots and lots of information from lots of different sources and then we have to get lots of different specialists to put their heads together and and come up with some solutions and some actions to protect these really special birds. Thanks James. That was Auckland Zoo vet James Chatterton on the line from the New Zealand Centre for Conservation Medicine. James says that the Kakapo CT scans, imagine that, are being read by a specialist veterinary radiologist in the United States. And I expect the results to arrive just after I hit the publish button for this podcast. Ain't that always the way? Now, let's cross to the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital to vet Lisa Ajila. Kia ora and a very big welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you. This is the first time we've actually had you on the podcast, but I hope your ears have been burning because you've been mentioned a few times. Of course, early on in the breeding season, you had quite a few of the hand-reared birds. Yeah, we had 25 kakapo chicks in our um, facility for hand-rearing. So you can imagine the craziness that ensued with all these tiny little white fluff balls uh, that were very, very dependent on us. Pretty awesome. Exhausting. Do you have any kakapo in the hospital at the moment? 
I do. We're down to two now. They're healthy chicks and they're just sort of surgical cases at the moment. So we have got a little Esperance 1B who we sort of call SB or Brainy or Einstein, kind of depending on who you talk to. So this little chick hatched with an open fontanel and had some brain sort of herniating through the gap in the skull. There was a lot of discussion around what to do with this little guy, or little girl, I should say. It's being confirmed as a female. No one's had to deal with this in a bird before, uh, as far as we could tell. And one of the big concerns that we had was um, under anesthesia, there's always intracranial pressure issues that could potentially occur. So the general consensus was it would be wonderful to have a specialist anesthetist especially involved in any surgical procedure that occurred. So we all decided that Massey had the expertise as far as anesthetists and, of course, surgeons um, who could perform this procedure. So I actually accompanied her and drove her from Wellington to Palmerston North, um, settled her in with the guys up at Wild Base, and they performed the amazing surgery, and it was successful, which was just incredible. Um, you know, it's quite quite terrifying, the thought and the prospect of doing a brain surgery on a cockapoo chick. And she spent a couple of weeks just making sure that there were no post-operative uh, complications. And now she's been sent back down to us here in Dunedin, so we can continue hand-rearing her. But also, most importantly, we didn't want to keep her alone for too long because we do want to reduce the risk of imprinting in these little guys. So I guess that brings me to my other little chick that I have in hospital, who's of a similar age. They're about nine days apart. And we have a wee Queenie 3A, who is a little chick that was stood on by her mother when she was only two days old, and this broke her leg. And it all appeared to be healing well, so we'd done some x-rays and sort of assessed her, and everything seemed to be going well. So then we all made the decision that we'd like to get her back out to the island Um, because at that time we only had her alone in hospital, so again, to reduce imprinting. And, you know, in general, these guys just tend to do better when they're actually being reared by a mother, kakapo versus humans. And so she was sent to the island and all seemed to be going well, but obviously, because she was quite young, there must have been something that was just undetectable on X-ray, which has now caused her leg to grow a little bit skew as she's grown bigger and bigger. Um, So now she just sadly, for her needs um, a surgical procedure just to correct that defect because her leg's quite twisted. So the big concern is that um, even though she seems to be moving reasonably well, she will sometimes get trapped. So I've actually observed her moving and she might get stuck in a a branch or some of the brows that we've been offering. And so we don't want to set her up to fail. And so she is actually going to be having surgery tomorrow to repair and straighten her leg, and then that will mean she stays with us for at least another five to six weeks while that refracture that we make heals. Well, I have to send lots of well wishes, both from myself and, of course, as listeners know, from my mother. <laughs> yeah. Um, since we have a particular family interest in this bird. Uh, are you going to do the surgery? Yeah, I'm, I'm used to these kinds of procedures. I guess the worst part of the procedure is going to be actually I have to fracture her leg, and then I have to take um, the right amount out so that it's actually straightened so that, you know, if you take too little, the leg will still be skewed. But if you take too much, you could actually make it skew um, the wrong way. So, yeah, it's going to be going to be a little little bit of mathematical calculation. So I've been looking at my x-rays today. The repair will actually be what we call an external fixer. So it's a whole lot of metal pins and rods that will stabilize the leg. And generally, within within a day of having that kind of repair done, they're normal, normally able to stand again. So that's what I'm hoping is that she'll bounce back really fast and you'll just sort of manage her pain from the, the new fracture. And yeah, all going well. We'll um, have her walking within a day of the surgery. 
she can be quite a grumpy chick because she spent quite a decent amount of time now with her mother Kakapo, so she's still got that little wild streak in her. The two chicks are getting on well? Yes, oh, they, they're doing great. They're really, really good friends, and they boy, do they get up to mischief sometimes, those two. You can often see them plotting, and you just wonder, what are they getting up to? Yeah, it's quite fun when dealing with them when they're at this age and just playful and exploring. Now, aspergillosis. Aspergillus seems to be a growing problem at the moment. I've been talking to James at Auckland Zoo about that. What's your opinion as a vet about it? Aspergillosis, oh, gosh. I guess it's my biggest nightmare, and most avian vets probably feel the same way. It's absolutely the worst disease. It is so hard to diagnose, and often when you do diagnose it, the bird that is infected uh, is often too far gone. Sometimes you'll get a really high level of white blood cells in a, in a blood smear, and then sometimes it'll still look normal. So it can be really frustrating to diagnose. And if you do have a successful outcome with treatment, it's normally up to months and months and months of treatment. So it's just devastating that we're, we're seeing it now in other kakapo chicks and some of our adults as well. And we haven't pinned down yet why. Um, Obviously, something has immunocompromised these birds. Uh, there's a lot of uh, work going on to try and figure out what might be the cause. But we're doing our utmost to try and save these guys. Thanks, Lisa. And vet Lisa Argilla is at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital. To round out this episode of the Kakapo Files, we are now going back in time. In a wonderful piece of audio from the archives of Ngā Sound and Vision... Arthur Harper, or A.P. Harper, as he's better known, is reminiscing about Kākāpō from time he spent in South Westland in the 1890s. A.P. was a lawyer, mountaineer, explorer, businessman, conservationist. He was active in the New Zealand Alpine Club and instrumental in the creation of the Federated Mountain Club. He had the privilege of spending three years in southern Westland as assistant to the great bushman and explorer Charlie Douglas. Charlie Douglas is often quoted in kākāpō circles for saying that kākāpō were once so common you could shake a tree and the kākāpō would fall down like apples. Natawa's Sarah Johnston, who sent me the audio, says the 1949 recording is on a fairly crackly old disc but she's done the best job she can in cleaning it up for us. Enjoy this glimpse into some very different times. The kakapo is sometimes called the owl parrot. It's a large bird, light green in colour, owl's eyes and whiskers like a cat. There are plenty of specimens in our museums. Whether it's a parrot on the way to turn into an owl, or an owl on which may ultimately become a parrot, I cannot say. Their eggs are quite small for such a large bird about the size of a pigeon's egg, a great contrast to the huge eggs laid by the much smaller kiwi. The kakapo is a night bird living in holes in the ground or hollows under the roots of trees. Although I've called it flightless, it has larger wings than a weaker has, but they are not strong enough to enable it to rise off the ground in flight. They are just sufficiently strong to allow the bird to drop off a rock of about 30 feet in height without hurting itself. If they're feeding on toot, they can flutter from one tree to another, provided it is lower than where they started. But if they misjudge the distance, they fall to the ground with a terrible thump, practically like a shot bird. Douglas said he had once seen a kakapo flap across a creek 20 yards wide, landing much lower than where he started. 
Thus one is not far wrong in classing them amongst our flightless birds. In the very early days on the west coast, prospectors and explorers often found a beaten track on a narrow bush-covered spur which looked as if it was made by sheep or goats as a regular route up and down the spur. These tracks are really kakapo tracks, for the birds generally live at the bottom of the valley and walk up during a night to feed on the snowgrass. From what I saw myself, I should say that they sometimes climb 1,500 to 2,000 feet to reach the grass and descend again before daylight. Not a bad effort for a big clumsy bird on foot. Bill de Maori, who was my mate when I went down the Lansbury River in southwestland in 94, told me a good deal about the Maoris and how they used to hunt the birds. They took advantage of these kakapo tracks. They would wait close to the track at night time, and as the birds came along squealing and squabbling, they flashed a light in the leader's eyes, and staggered by the light, the birds would stop and be easily caught. At certain seasons, the kakapos in the low country would climb on the low toot trees and feed off the young shoots and berries. And the Maoris would go out on a moonlight night and by shaking the bushes would capture them easily. Curiously enough, the bird, which is very strong and has powerful claws, is not aggressive. He won't attack an enemy like the weaker does, but once he is touched, he puts up a bit of a fight. But his lack of aggressiveness puts him at a disadvantage with a stoat. With those claws of his, he could kill a stoat instantly if he took the initiative, as a weaker would. No dog which knows about kakapos would go into their holes. When he finds one, he stands off and barks to let you know that the bird is there. Then if you're wise, you'll hook it out of the, of the hole with a forked stick, not put your hand in to be seized by one of those wicked claws. A dog's first experience of a kakapo generally teaches him caution. For on finding his first bird, he generally pushes his head into the hole. The bird gets hold of his nose with his beak and shoves his great claws into the hair on the dog's chest, so that the victim has some difficulty in breaking off the fight. One experience of this kind is enough for any wise dog. From then on, caution is his motto. When the kakapo come down off the snowgrass to their holes before dawn, one hears a curious booming noises all over the place. To locate the spot where the noise comes from is most difficult, unless one has a dog to help. Probably coming from a hole in the ground or under a tree, the sound is distorted. I know that as far as I was concerned, the dog would locate the bird in quite a different place from which I'd expected to find it from the, sound, from the noise. Douglas's theory was that the birds, having filled their enormous crops with snowgrass, spent the first hour or so after they returned to their holes in chewing over the grass and spitting out the hard fibre. And that in this process of chewing the cud, they make their curious booming. There seems to be something in this idea, for one can see heaps of round balls of dry fibre around their dry day quarters. They have exceptionally large crops which hold a lot of stuff. The Maori told me that the crop of a freshly killed kakapo was useful as a poultice to draw poison out of a wound. This may be so, but I never tried it. Kakapos are rarely found, if ever found, outside beech forest areas. These are mostly in the far south. Their tracks have been seen on snow fields, so they evidently have crossed the divide in places. I know that kakapos some 60 years ago 
were to be seen in the bush in the beech forests about the southern lakes, such as Wanaka and Hawea. At one time, they must also have inhabited the great beech forest areas of the Buller River and the hinterland of Nelson. In fact, somewhere about 1930, when I was inspecting a prospecting claim near Collingwood, an old prospector told me that there were quite a number of kakapos round his camp on the ranges behind Tarkaka. From what he said, I imagine they have survived in the rough country in the Nelson district better than they have in South Westland. One never hears of any being found down there now. I don't think kakapos have ever inhabited the North Island. In a previous broadcast, I have mentioned how rapidly our native birds have decreased in Westland. The case of the kakapo is very striking. In 1889, Douglas led the first exploration of the Lansbury River, which is one of the largest rivers on the west coast. It takes its rise from some large glaciers near Mount Sefton, and after flowing 35 miles between two high ranges carrying large snow and ice fields, it's joined by the Haas River, a comparatively small tributary which flows from the Haas Pass. And for some reason, the main Lansbury River becomes the Haas River until it reaches the sea. As a matter of fact, the Haas is a small tributary of the much larger Lansbury, so it seems ridiculous to make the latter tributary a tributary of the former. Douglas went up the western bank of the Lansbury to its source, and five years later, I, with Bill the Maori, went up the Karangarua, crossed the pass at its head, which leads into the, onto the glacier which feeds the Lansborough. We had to go down the latter river to make the first exploration of the eastern bank and look for passes into Canterbury. Douglas told me we needn't worry about food because kakapos and other birds were so plentiful. Therefore the Maori and I left the head of the river for what I reckoned would be about two weeks' trip with very little tucker. I took seven pounds of flour, some tea and sugar, a little chocolate and treacle, easily sufficient for us with the help of birds. In 1889, Douglas found so many kakapos that he had to tie the dog up at night to prevent it killing unnecessarily. He said the birds were literally in hundreds round his camp, screeching and squealing after dark like a lot of demons. In 1894, the Maori and I found no birds at all for the first five or six days. We had quite a serious starve. But near the glacier at the head of the river, I found a dead stoat, which explained the difference. When later I made one or two ascents looking for a pass, I did find a few kakapos near the grass line, in place of the hundreds seen by Douglas only five years earlier. There were certainly more birds on the western bank, for we could hear them at night, but the river was too large and swift to ford. It was most tantalizing one moonlight night when we were longing for a meal, see kiwis and weekers and hear the kakapos just across the river, less than a hundred yards away. The scarcity of birds on the eastern bank, while they seem still fairly plentiful on the western side, combined with the finding of the dead stoat, seems definite evidence that the stoats were responsible. Later on, no doubt, these little beasts reached the source of the river and crossed to the western side over the glacier, hence the final disappearance of the birds from the whole valley. For many years, the Lansbury has been overrun by deer, which came over the divide from South Canterbury Valleys. Their tracks have made traveling much easier than we found it in 1894. The government deer colors have shot thousands during the last 25 years, and 
and from what I've heard they report a complete absence of birds. The Maoris in the old days depended upon kakapos for food in the same way they did, uh, did on weakers. A fat kakapo will give nearly as much oil as a weaker of a light straw colour and not nearly so strongly flavoured. Scones or shortbread made of flour mixed with kakapo oil were quite good, much more palatable than those made from weaker oil. We always kept our pickle tins to carry the oil of both birds for, for later use. It made the flour last much longer, which is a big consideration when one is away from habitation for weeks or months at a time. That was A.P. Harper, recorded in 1949. He was reminiscing about Kākāpō and time he spent in South Westland in the 1890s with the explorer Charlie Douglas. A big thanks to Sarah Johnston at Natanga Sound and Vision for that audio treat. There is a wonderful photo of AP, Charlie and the dog Betsy on the Kākāpō Files webpage. Just head to rnz.co.nz slash This was episode 18 of the Kākāpō Files from RNZ. If you haven't already subscribed as a podcast, it's not too late. You'll find it at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. A big thanks, as always, to the Kākāpō Recovery Team at the Department of Conservation. Our thoughts are with you in these worrying times. I'm Alison Balance. I'll be back in a fortnight with more breaking news from the world of New Zealand's night parrot. But until then, thanks for your company. Bye for now. Matewa. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.